Okay, so we're going to talk about Matthew 20. Um, and it starts off with the, the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And I found out something that I didn't know in, in prepping for this, and that is that a lot of scholars think this is one of Jesus' most, most difficult parables to understand. Um, and, 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 you know, a little, little, little background. Any one of Jesus' parables that he didn't explain, there's a little bit of uncertainty there. Because you have to decide what's symbolic and what's not. And when you decide what's symbolic, then you have to decide what the symbolism means. And so this one can be kind of tricky. There are some scholars that would tell you that this one is about salvation history. Because think about it, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Gentiles just you know, kind of come in and, and the Jews are like, well, shouldn't they, have to, shouldn't they have to do the same stuff that we've been doing, walking under the law for years? How come they get the same reward that we get? You with me? So some people are saying, you know, this is about salvation history. Other people will tell you it's just about salvation in general. I mean, think about it. The, uh, the, the thief on the cross gets the same reward that the person that's been walking with the Lord for 80 years gets. That, from our perspective, doesn't seem right. So some people would say it's just about salvation. Some people would tell you that the, that the first shall be last, last shall be first, that that's an explanation of the story. I really think that the story is an example of that concept. And so we're going to explore that as we go. Is that you with me so far? Because they're staring at me like, what is he talking about? All right, well, we'll I'll, I'll unpack it as we go through, all right? Let's pray. Father, we, we invite you right now, as we look at your word, we're inviting you to illuminate, to, to speak into us by your spirit. Lord, we, we don't want to just hear some nice ideas. We want to hear from you. And we're inviting you to work in our hearts. We're, we're intentionally opening ourselves to you and inviting you to have your way in us, even here and now. And we thank you that you will because you're faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if we really want to understand this parable, we really have to get the context. So in, in order to do that, we have to go kind of backpedal a little bit. We've got to go back into chapter 19 just a little bit. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, all right? But we do need to kind of get the, the context here. So I'm going to go back to, and if you have your Bible, it would be really good. I know you've got really good notes that are in the bulletin, all right? But if you've got your Bible, it's good to have that because I'm going to be kind of hit, you know, hitting back and forth on different things. So it's, it just might be handy. So we're going to go back to verse 26 in Matthew 19. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And you get, we need to remember that question. Okay, we'll come back to that. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, you, will have you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he launches into the, the, the parable here. But then kind of go down to... Um, uh, verse 16 of chapter 20, what does it say? So the last will be first and the first last. Kind of sounds familiar there, doesn't it? What we just heard at the, the, the end of chapter 19. So those, those bookend statements, one at the beginning of the parable, one at the end of the parable, I don't think that was by accident. 
So if you remember in 19, Jesus is talking to the, the rich young ruler, right? And, and the man asks, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And, and Jesus you know, kind of lays it out for him. And I think what Jesus is doing, he's driving him to see that he's relying on his own goodness. He's got this major, uh, this major crutch, this major idol in his life, his money. And then Jesus says, it's easier for a, or it's, it's very difficult for a rich person to be saved, is basically the, the, the essence. And so his disciples ask that great question, who then can be saved? You know, they're all always flustered when Jesus makes statements. Um, and and Jesus responds with, man, this is impossible, not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter asks the question, we've, been, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? And Jesus responds, you get to sit on 12 thrones. And then at the end, he says, the first shall be last and the last will be first. And then he goes into the parable. So this is not a separate idea. It's all, it all ties together here. The, the, the story of the labors in the vineyard comes to a climax when they get paid at the end, Right? He's handing out the money. And what, what the way it works is it seems counterintuitive to us because they're paying the last guys, they're getting paid first. That seems weird. I mean, what, what, the guys that just showed up, why not have them stand and watch and let the other ones get paid? That, that seems like it, what it should be, right? So it seems backwards, but that's really what makes this story, so I think, so poignant. Um, they, they have to watch this. They have to see that. And because of that, they're going, hey, these guys got that. We're going to get a whole bunch. I mean, if they got that much, what are, what are we going to get, right? But they don't. They don't get more. And when the owner is asked, he says, well, I gave you what you signed up for. This is what, this is what I said. Are, are you going to be upset because I'm generous with my money? They're, they're clearly not happy about this. And, and you know, as I read this, this, their response reminds me of the, the older brother in the prodigal story. Or if I can be really, really candid with you, it reminds me of we, me when I think I deserve something on my own. Hello? So... <laughs> So think back to Peter's question that I kind of pointed out there in 19. See, we have left everything and follow you. What will we then have? So if you read that into the story here, what, what would Peter get out of this? You're going to get the same thing everybody else is. Are you with me? The, the ES, this is really hard for me to say. Chapter, or verse four, 15, sorry, verse 15 is, I think, the key to this whole thing. And the ESV doesn't, capture this well. I, I hate to say that. Um, uh, Rich read from the New King James, and it really does a good job because it talks about an evil eye. Uh, the ESV says, do you begrudge my generosity? Mm, kinda, but what it literally says is, is thine eye evil because I am good? It's the same word that's used in, in Matthew 6.23. Is your eye bad or is your eye evil? Your, if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Having an evil eye was apparently a, a figure of speech in the Greek that stood for envy or greed. So the owner is saying, do you have an evil eye? Are you envious? Because if so, you're looking at this thing all wrong. You got it upside down, guys. And that's the, that's the essence of Peter's question. Hey, Jesus, we did this great thing. We left everything. We're following you. What, what are we going to get out of this? See, Peter Peter wants something above and beyond what other people are getting. And Jesus says, you're going to get the same thing. 
in our, our mind doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. We don't like that. See, the problem is that we put too much value on possessions and positions, if you will. Think about it this way. We use our eyes to determine value. I, I really like that car. I'm, I'm going to get that one. Those bananas don't look ripe. I'm not going to get those. We use our eye to determine value. Deuteronomy 15.9 talks about, it uses the term the hostile eye. And it's uh, used to describe somebody who refuses to help a poor person because they know the year of Jubilee is coming when the, all the debts are going to be forgiven. So they don't want to be that generous. Hostile eye. So, so the evil eye the envious, the, the greed, the wanting to have more than somebody else. One writer said that the opposite of the evil eye is an open hand. Think about that for a minute. So think about it. Is your eye evil? In other words, are you, are you envious? Are you greedy uh, over what somebody else has? Or are you generous? Toward them. Let me make this personal. When somebody at your workplace gets a promotion, how do you respond? Honestly, from your heart, how do you respond? When, when, when your, your fellow classmate gets a better grade on the test than you did, how do you respond? When when your friend scores more points in the game than you did, do you rejoice with them? Or are you upset? When somebody who is, has seemingly labored less than you gets more success, how do you respond? Is your eye evil? Or do you rejoice in the open-handed goodness of God? It's really quiet in here, you guys. And understand that, that envy is not just limited to individuals. As I've traveled, I've encountered congregations that were envious of another church because of what they had, or maybe about pining for the, the old days of their own congregation, the way things used to be. You know, if we do that kind of thing, if we're, we're envious of what somebody else has or, or what somebody else had previously, I think we're missing the goodness of God in our own lives here and now. One writer said it like this, why is goodness often the occasion for anger? Why do we find it so difficult to rejoice over the good that enters other people's lives? And why do we spend our time, trying, time calculating how we have been cheated? I thought about taking a yellow highlighter and highlighting that on all of the notes pages in there. Um, I think maybe you should circle it and go home and read it five times. Um, what a convicting statement, isn't it? See, the fact is that you and I will never know the fullness of God's kindness, the fullness of God's love in our own lives when we're looking at the lives of other people. When we're being envious of what they've got, what they've been given, things that they're dealing with instead of looking at what God is doing in us. So, so think back to the, the rich young ruler in 19 and he, he asked the question, what good thing do I need to do? And Jesus says, uh, uh, there's only one good and that's God. So the guy leaves, but it's still all in the same context. Jesus hasn't left that train of thought, all right? 
And he goes on and he talks about the goodness of, can I say, the owner of Israel's vineyard, God? You following me? And so if he's talking about God in that story, then I think he's talking to you and me in that story. And if so, then what's our response? What do, how do we deal with that? What, what do we take from that? And I would suggest that um, first that we recognize that God is good, that he is open-handed, his open-handed goodness is, goodness is extended toward all people, and that at the same time that maybe, maybe our response is that we should imitate that, that we shouldn't be, begrudge other people what God is doing in their life. You with me? All right, so from, and we're gonna come back to that concept, all right, because we, this, this, I was blown away as I looked at this chapter, um, but it kind of all weaves together. We're gonna go on from there. Jesus, uh, they're, they're, he and his, his band of disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. I want you to notice the words in verses 17 and 18. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was in the high country. It was on a mountain. When, the, when there was a festival and all the pilgrims were going there, they would uh, sing psalms of ascent. They were going up, all right? And so it was not only the place where the, the temple of God was, it was also the place where the, the king, the ruler of the nation, dwelled. And so I would suggest that for Jesus, this is not, this is both. This is, uh, he is going there to fulfill the prophecies about both his lordship and his kingship. He is ascending to this purposefully. And as he's going up, there's this, this excitement, there's a kind of hoopla going on that people are getting excited. You know, we've seen big crowds before. And if you look at, uh, fast forward into chapter 21, there's a, this, it's a, it talks about a great crowd of people. Well, it's building up to that. So there's a crowd of people here and, and, and they're excited about what's going on. Um, understand, Israel has had no Davidic king for generations. And... For the last generation or so, there's been a Herod on the throne, not even a true Israelite, okay? But the people still have hope. They still believe that there is going to come a son of David. And so they're excited about uh, this procession here, what the possibility might be. And then it's right in the middle of all that excitement that Jesus kind of takes his guys aside and says, I'm going to die. Now, he's told them this before, okay? If, if you read the four Gospels, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three times in Matthew, um, three times in Mark, and then another kind of afterwards, uh, referring back to one of the predictions, uh, twice in Luke, and then two times afterwards, referring back to his prediction, and one time in John. And if you read all of those different ones, some of them seem like they're probably the same time, same issue, but there's enough difference in some of the context that there's at least four or five different times that Jesus has predicted that he's going to die, that he's going to be crucified, all right? Uh, years ago, somebody said that, that Jesus' death was all a big mistake, that it wasn't really supposed to happen, it wasn't part of the plan, but clearly, he understands what's going to happen. He knows what's ahead, and he's telling them. So three times in the book of Matthew alone, he tells that he's going to die. I'm not going to go through the... Uh, uh, chapter 16, but also in chapter 17. But I do want to read the one in verse 20, um, or chapter 20, because this is uh, kind of where we're at. 
And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So I want you to try to imagine the scene. You're one of Jesus' disciples. You're on your way. There's all this excitement. He pulls you aside and says, hey, I'm gonna die. But this, and he said this before, but he, this is different because in the past, it's been like kind of this nebulous thing. Yeah, it's gonna happen. But now his words seem like it's imminent. It's close. It's gonna happen soon. Like as in we're on our way to Jerusalem and that's where and when it's gonna happen, guys. That's, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, that's gotta be a little unsettling. Got to kind of be unnerving for you, right? Jesus is going to be condemned to death and it's going to happen really, really soon. I'm, I'm not liking this. But if you notice in here, he also gives them some details that he hasn't before. He tells them that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now for us, that's not a big deal, but if you're Jewish, that's a big deal. That just changed everything about what's going to happen here. He's just not going to die. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, those disgusting, creepy Gentiles. And he, he also says that he's, there's the first time apparently that he tells them he's going to be mocked and whipped. Okay, if I'm one of his disciples, I'm going, this is not sounding good. You with me? But I would also suggest that in the midst of this, that Jesus is taking the first, last, last, first thing and applying it to himself. See, that, that's been, that's been his, his life all the way through. I mean, think about it. He's always taking the lower path. I mean, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but think about it. If you're God and you're gonna come to this fallen, rebellious creation what is the only logical way to do this? You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna come as the conquering king. You're gonna come riding on the white horse with the armies of heaven. I mean, that's the only thing that even begins to make sense if you're gonna come to this rebellious fallen creation, right? And Jesus comes as a baby. That's insanity. Okay, so if you're gonna come as a baby, then you're gonna be born into a palace and you're gonna be born into a royal family where you can grow up and become king and, and make a difference. No, he's born in a, a manger in some backwoods place in the middle of nowhere. This is crazy. Everything upside down and backwards. And here he is predicting his death. And again, upside down and backwards to our way of thinking. The crucifixion for the Romans, it was the, it was the form of execution for what they considered to be the lower classes. Thieves and reb, uh, the, the rebels and the slaves and the murderers, those are the guys, the guys that, that wanted to exalt themselves, they wanted to lift themselves up, they get lifted up on a cross. And that's how Jesus is going to die. Peter Lightheart said it like this. He says that he will be given over to the Gentiles and executed shamefully on a cross, but in the great reversal of resurrection, I love that phrase, the great reversal of resurrection, he will be exalted to the first place so he might be preeminent in everything. So Jesus keeps taking this lower place, lower place, lower place, he lasts, so that he becomes first. Do you see it? Understand? In the very end of that section, 
he makes a statement that seems unprecedented in anything else that he's said. Son of man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is pretty common in the Bible. It's used to describe payments or redemptions. Um, For example, somebody who's buying a kinsman out of slavery, they're ransoming that person, right? I was reading 1 Samuel just like a week and a half ago, and there's there's an incident there where Jonathan, the son of Saul, eats some honey. Now, that sounds innocent enough, um, but the, the, the army is out battling, and Saul has declared that nobody should eat until evening, and but Jonathan isn't there. He doesn't know that. And so he eats some honey just to give himself a little bit of strength. And so uh, when it, the, the, the decree was that if anybody eats, that their life is forfeit. And so technically, Jonathan should die. And long story short, Saul is willing to let him die, and Jonathan is willing to die. But the people come to his, his side and, and say, no, we don't want this. They stand up against Saul. And 1 Samuel 14, 45, it says, so the people ransomed Jonathan so he did not die. They redeemed him, if you will, by, by standing with him. So, so when Jesus said that he gave his life as a ransom, he's talking about buying us back to the Father, keeping us from eternal death, just like the people there in the army kept Jonathan from death. Peter Lightheart said it this way, Jesus says that his death will be a liberating death, a substitution for those who are condemned to die. He will drink the cup for those who deserve to drink it and so give his life as a ransom for many. And Jonathan, in that story I just shared, he didn't really deserve to die. It was the crazy whim of his, his capricious father just you know, throwing something out there. You and I, on the other hand, we deserve to die. We deserve eternal death because of our own sin, because of our, our sinful nature that we inherited. And yet Jesus willingly gave his life as a ransom so that we might know eternal life, that we might walk with God, that we might be reconciled to him, to give his life as a ransom for many. So here is Jesus again telling them that he's going to die and again, the, the disciples seem to miss what he's saying. Apparently, they got the part about the 12 thrones. But the, the death on the cross, mm, not so much. And we don't know if they were just, you know, they just ignored what he said, if they were hard of hearing, you know, something. But they definitely got the part about the thrones. James and John, they want the ones closest to Jesus. They clearly got that part. But they missed the fact that the way to those thrones was through the cross. Jesus asked them if they can drink the cup that he's about to drink. And and if they didn't get the part about Jesus dying, I'm sure they have no clue what he's actually asking here, okay? Can you drink the cup that I'm, I'm about to drink? Fast forward, you and I know, because in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he pray? Let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of suffering that he's about to go through. He knows that this is not going to be an easy road. This is going to be challenging. This is going to be difficult. He's going through this suffering. And he's saying, guys, guys can you drink this cup? And, 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 and James and John are like, oh, oh, sure, yeah, we, we, can, we can do that. Yeah, uh-huh. no problem. Not a, not a clue. I mean, no idea at all what he's asking. But I love the, uh, the symbolism that is evident throughout the scriptures, and especially as we've seen it here in the book of Matthew. There's a couple of things that, I'm going to show you here that I I was just blown away by. The first one, James and John are asking for the thrones that are on one on the right and one on the left, right? Now, there are other ways that that could be asked. 
you, you could ask, can we sit on either side of you? Can we each sit next to you? Right? But we've learned from Stephen and David Kreuter that when we see phrases in the scripture, um, that maybe we should see where else they might be. And this exact same phraseology is used at the crucifixion. Do you remember the two thieves, one on his right and one on his left? I think there's an indication here that maybe those that are closest to Jesus have to suffer some? Well, we don't want to hear that. Tom, could we talk about something fun? It's not always easy. And this whole, the, the, the symbolism here, um, one more thing. Think about it. The two disciples that request those prominent positions, John and James, right? They want those, those positions right next to it. And then what happens immediately after that? Jesus heals two blind guys. I think that the positioning of those two things in Matthew's vernacular, in Matthew's way of storytelling, that's not an accident that those two things are right next to each other. I would suggest to you that the, that the disciples are blind men who need Jesus to heal them. I mean, think about it. The request of the, the mother for those two and the, and the indignation of the other 10 all indicate that they all have evil eyes. They want those positions, every one of them. And this isn't something they haven't talked about before. Two chapters ago, they talked about who's the greatest in the kingdom. The obvious implication is, is it me? Right? And Jesus tells them, you got to become like a little child. Here he's telling them they got to become like a servant. But they're, they're, just, they're just not getting. They, they want the best positions. They were being greedy. They didn't understand the whole servant thing. They were, they were valuing power and position, those kind of things, too much. They needed their spiritual eyes opened. They needed their blind eyes healed. They needed their evil eyes of envy and greed to be opened by the Lord. And I think you and I often need that same thing. And I want you to notice one other thing here. It's kind of a side issue, but I think it's an important side issue. Jesus doesn't condemn positions of honor. He promises them positions of honor, the 12 thrones. The problem is that the way to those positions is through suffering. We really don't like this sermon, Tom. James and John didn't really understand what they were asking. They needed their eyes healed. All right, so then we come to these two blind guys. They understood that the son of David could indeed heal them. But they're going along in this crowd, and the crowd of people is, is, is trying to hush up these two blind guys because they're calling after Jesus, right? And, and the crowd is saying, hey, hey, buzz off. We're, can't, can't you see we've got a parade going on here? Leave us alone. But that didn't deter these guys in the least. They just kept going. The crowd didn't, didn't understand that Jesus came to heal blind eyes. He came to destroy the works of the devil. But that says they cried out all the more. 
I love that tenacity. Son of David, have mercy! I think we need that kind of tenacity in our lives. That we cry out to him with all that we have, regardless of what's happening around us, what, what other people might say or think. Son of David, have mercy. Let's keep going. Apparently Jesus liked that tenacity too because he healed them. Healed their blind eyes. Love it. Do you need your evil eyes healed? Oh, maybe I wasn't supposed to ask that. Sorry. All right, let me start to wrap this up for you. What? Already? Yeah. Bunch of questions there I think are in your notes. How do you keep away from an evil eye? How do you not think more of yourself than you should? How do you walk in humility? How do you act out being generous like your heavenly father, the one who is good? How can you willingly go through challenges, difficulties, and even suffering as a Christian? I would suggest that three of the four priorities that we have set for this year for our congregation might be good steps in the right direction. Persistent prayer, walking in unity, and living in righteousness. So think about it. When we pray, we're expressing our dependence on God. We're saying, Lord, I need you. And we're saying, I can't do it on my own, which automatically keeps us humble. We're trusting him as we go through situations. We're putting our eyes on him. We're praying. Are you with me? And that's automatically gonna make us more dependent on him. If we're really walking in unity, we're way less concerned about having more or being better or any sort of one-upmanship. I mean, if we really see ourselves as part of the same body, and I don't mean even this church body, I'm talking about the body of Christ, then I'm way less concerned about if God blesses you and I don't see the same thing in my life because you know what? We're part of the same body. You're getting blessed? Yes! Are you with me? There's no, there's no place for envy there. There's no place for that kind of thing. No, we're all the same. We're all together. And so that should automatically push that stuff out. And all of that really causes us to live more in righteousness. I mean, it's like what we've been saying since the beginning of this study in Matthew. Seeing Jesus in action, listening to and, and responding to his words, and taking his words to heart, that those things are gonna change us. They're gonna affect our lives. They're, it's got to. As we recognize the open-handed goodness of God. See, I think oftentimes we don't think we're deserving. And on our, on our own, we're not, okay? In and of ourselves, we're not. Everybody with me on that? But because of what Jesus did, we're part of him. We're part of his body. And so we should expect that God is blessing us and others, and we expect to see his hand. We're not envious when somebody else gets something. No, we're glad. It's not because God loves that person more than you. No. See, when we really understand who we are in Christ, when we really understand that we have a father who loves us intensely, what difference does it make if somebody else gets blessed? 
Oh, the way Nick used to say it. He used to say, what, what are you worried about some trinkets for when God is offering you himself? Who cares? All right, they got a new car, great. I got the God of the universe, you know what I mean? Way better. We have that kind of mindset, changes us. This has been, this going through this whole thing has been extremely convicting for me case you couldn't tell as I was preaching. Um, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit is working in your heart too. And he's asking you to put aside that envy, that evil eye that wants more, but instead to embrace that open-handed generosity of a good, good God And maybe we can be more that way ourselves because we see him being that way. Trusting him and his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, we, as we have looked at your word, God, we've been convicted. Lord, too often we have been envious of what others have. We have been jealous of what you have seemingly given to others that you haven't given to us. God, forgive us. But we ask that you would heal our evil eyes, that you would change us, that you would open our spiritual eyes to see as you see, not the way that that the world sees, but as you see, that we might trust in you because you love us so richly, because you care so much for us to trust that you are at work within us. And Lord, to see the the myriad of blessings that you pour into us every single day that so often we miss. Lord, open our eyes that we might see those things more clearly, more fully, and to give you thanks for your open-handed goodness in so very many ways. May that be us by your grace. Amen.